1: Episode two hundred ninety-five of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We're very close to episode three hundred, aren't we? But episode three hundred will have to wait until next season because this is also the last episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast this season. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. Uh, joining me today is Nathan Gilmore, who is a professor of English at Franklin Spr- Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, how's it going?
2: Ah, uh, the place actually started as Franklin Springs Academy, so we'll take it. We'll take it.
1: Yeah, back in time. Also joining us is David Grubbs, who is a uh, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. David. Hello, hello. As I said, this will be our last episode of the season, but the other shows on our network are going to continue to post over the summer, but we are not, as is our tradition. I think that over the summer we're going to program some old episodes uh, into our feed. So if you have a non-Apple podcatcher, that'll update as if they were new episodes. If you have an Apple podcatcher or one that uses iTunes as... Mine does. Uh, mine is, what, Overcast is the one I use? Yeah, that so that 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 takes its feed from iTunes. And for whatever reason, iTunes doesn't like it when we uh, put old ep- episodes onto the feed. So if you're like me and you use an Apple-based podcatcher, uh, you'll probably want to watch our Twitter feed, CH Radio Network, or our website, christianhumanist.org, for which one we're re-releasing. But, of course, all of our old episodes are available um, for free at any time so you don't actually have to wait for us to re-release them uh, and we don't know exactly which ones we're going to be programming over the summer so if there's one you think we should replay as long as it's not one of the first ten or so uh, send us an email at, Christ- at thechristianhumanist at and we will, uh, we will consider your suggestion anything to add to that guys?
2: Uh, do we want to talk about what's going on this week?
1: Yeah, good idea what, what else is happening on the network? <laughs>
2: Yeah, so Sectarian uh, Review has a uh, an episode on the Cynthia Ozick story, The Pagan Rabbi, uh, which when I was uh, getting ready to release that one, I read it wrong, and I thought it was about a chick tract atta- attacking the Easter Bunny. Uh,
1: um, <laughs> well, you, you know, Nathan, as uh, as someone who's written extensively on John Updike and on Jewish American fiction, I got a real hard time with Rabbit Rabbi. <laughs>
2: Uh, we've also got a uh, Christian Feminist podcast episode on Mother's Day. Uh, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I'm interested to do so. Uh, and we've got a new episode of Before They Were Live, Do We Not, Michael?
1: We do, with our uh, with our friend Kate Henriksen, who I don't know if we mentioned her, but she was taking photographs of us at our one and only live show at Dork College back in, what was that, 2017, 2018?
0: Yeah. Yay. One well, now those. she's
1: now she's talking to me and Josh about Beauty and the Beast. Very, Very cool. Our episode today is on Sonny's Blues, which is a short story that you may have read by James Baldwin. If you haven't read it, it is readily available online in PDF and HTML formats. And probably there's an audio reading of it somewhere, so you got no excuse. If you haven't read it, go read it, because I'm sure we're going to spoil it. Uh, Baldwin is... Among the most talented and important, important writers of post-war America and in, in the last decade or so in particular, he has emerged in our cultural memory as a kind of prophet for an age that once upon a time considered itself post-racial, as funny as that sounds. Uh, Nathan, what is so remarkable about Baldwin and his writing and, and what experience have you had with it personally?
2: Here recently, uh, I've spent more time with Baldwin's uh, epistolary writing than with his fiction, uh, and in fact, uh, back in February, uh, a group of Emanuel students and I did a uh, Black History Month event. Uh, I was basically doing a podcast-style interview while they spoke from their expertise uh, on his uh, epistolary collection, The Fire Next Time. Uh, so it's interesting. I mean, coming into this, I had read Sonny's Blues as an undergrad, but I hadn't really revisited uh, Baldwin since then. Uh, so, I mean, right now, just because, you know, I, I had done all the prep, getting ready for that event, I kind of thought of him as, you know, one of those figures of the 1960s African American literary experience, you know, a sort of post-religious counterpart to Malcolm and Martin. Uh, you know, he, he mentions both figures, of course, in The Fire Next Time. Uh, it's interesting, I, you know, because I, I have done a lot more reading, a lot more studying, of Malcolm and Martin than I have of Baldwin. You know, I, I noticed when I read The Fire Next Time that uh, where religions and, and historical religions, more particularly, uh, are sort of the seat of transcendence for uh, Malcolm's work and Martin's work. Um, with Baldwin, like I said, he is a, a post-religious writer. He grew up in the black church. Uh, he was certainly courted by Elijah Muhammad, Uh, but, you know, remained non-religious, it seems. So, in a certain way, I mean, America kind of takes that place, uh, I mean, in a way that's, you know, analogous to a lot of American literary figures. Of course, Walt Whitman comes to mind in this respect. Uh, So, I mean, you know, what I find interesting about, you know, revisiting his fiction uh, is that, you know, there is a sense of distance and there is a sense of alienation between... Uh, the experiences of the characters and then experiences that were kind of promised. And we'll talk about that, you know, in, in, uh, in particular with Sonny's blues as we roll along. Um, Michael, because I, I am just not very good at, at talking about uh, writers as stylists. I mean, what is there to say on that front? Um, he,
1: he has a kind of jazz aesthetic in some ways, I think, in the sense that there is an uh, improva, Im, improv, how do you say that word? Improvisatory. Uh, you, improvisational. You to say, yeah, improvisational uh, feel <laughs> to, to some of his prose. And I think you see that um, most clearly in his first novel, Go Tell It on, a, on the Mountain, which is... Uh, a, a postmodern novel in a lot of ways. It's it's difficult and it's about uh, it's about kind of deconstructing things and then reconstructing them. And and so I I think I think jazz is I, I don't think I know jazz is important to him. You see that really clearly here in Sonny's Blues. But I think some of it does indeed seep into his prose style. Uh, as you said, he's he's as known, maybe more known now for his essays as for his fiction. And he's a great essayist, too. The Fire Next Time is the one everybody reads. But they put out a posthumous collection a few years ago called The Cross of Redemption, which I read very avidly and uh, really loved. He's He is a, um, in, in addition to being a great writer, he's a very, very good reader, both of literary texts and of um, kind of social climate. Uh, Grubbs, do you have anything to add? uh, about James Baldwin or your experiences with him?
0: Not really. Um, my experience is somewhat like Nathan's. Uh, I had encountered him, uh, as an undergraduate, but simply because of, uh, the, the nature of my teaching and that, that's, that's such an interesting, I, 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 I don't know, maybe that, that would be something to talk about one day, um, is the way in which our teaching has led us to re- revisit certain texts consistently, um, but then other texts that it's just sort of kept us away from, sure. Um, and I, I, I really haven't revisited Baldwin since, um, just just because I haven't I haven't taught the kinds of classes that I read him in <laughs> as an undergrad. Um, so I was surprised. I, I honestly I remembered having read this story, but as I read it. I didn't remember ever having read it, and if I read it, I can't have read it more than cursory, curs, blah,
2: cursor. cursorily. Cursorily? No, yes. N- now two of us can't pronounce a word. You Nathan, are, you're next.
0: You're infecting me. Um,
2: and yet in pregame, listeners, I was the one complaining about how tired I am. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Uh, I can't have read it anything more than cur- yeah. What what Nathan said, because. Otherwise, it would have really stuck with me. This, this story has been with me for a few days um, now, and and I'm it's just sort of bouncing around. Uh, and I, I can't imagine that I'd read it before and forgotten it.
1: It's one of those stories that gets taught a lot in intro to lit classes. And part of that is because I, I think they, they probably assumed that a lot of people could relate to it. But also it's because it's one of the greatest short stories ever written. Like it's it's really fabulous and it doesn't go the places you think it's going to go. And it's not just the depressing slog that it looks like it's going to be at the outset. So uh, we'll, we'll get to all that. But th- there is one other thing we should say about Baldwin, which is in addition to being one of the most important um, African-American writers of the 20th century, he's one of the most important queer writers. Um, And and his sexuality is a a major theme in in most of his fiction, I would say, but probably uh, nowhere more so than his second novel, Giovanni's Room, which uh, is an interesting test case for what is African-American literature. And, in fact, when I took African-American literature in graduate school, we were presented with Giovanni's Room on the one hand, which has, I believe, no black characters, certainly no major black characters. Uh, And on the other hand... um, William Styron's Confessions of Nat Turner, which is a novel that centers African-American experience, but is written by a a white guy. So which of those is African-American fiction? Is either of them, you know, that's the sort of question you ask at the outset of a class like that in order to make people think about it. But Giovanni's Room is an important, uh, an important work in the history of gay literature. Um, So he, he really does, he really is important for more than just race, um, Though he is, of course, important for his race as well. well let's get back to Sonny's Blues. This, this is, I, I believe, 1957, so it's, uh, it's still fairly early in Baldwin's career. And it's a story about Sonny, as the title suggests, but everything we know about him we get from his unnamed brother, who happens to be the first-person narrator. Of the story, so I, I think we ought to begin with who this narrator is, what motivates him, what terrifies him, who he imagines himself to be. What light can you shed on that subject, David?
0: Well, the first thing that we learn about him is the way that he commutes to work. <laughs> uh, the first sentence mentions the subway. Um, the importance of you know this. This story is set in uh, set in New York City and the importance of the subway to a particular kind of life there um, so reading the paper there uh, he's also a teacher and uh, it, it mentions him teaching al- algebra so I guess um, uh, a, a math teacher and in, in a school that uh, serves, uh, serves a community that's much like the community in which he grew up um, so that, uh, that idea of, of uh, a man, uh, a, a black man who grows up in this, uh, this inner city, um, uh, poor community um, in which uh, most young men do not grow up with a sense of, of, of hopefulness um so that you, so that rather ex, uh, so that you know extreme behaviors um criminal behaviors substance abuse things like that become uh, a way out because more more positive more socially legitimized ways out are not uh seem not open um but our narrator does seem to have in at least in some sense gotten out if not geographically but in some sense, culturally, he is a teacher. He he teaches uh, at at a school. Um, also, it's mentioned before that that he was uh, he was in the military uh, during. Uh, I pre- I presume it must be World War II. Um, I was thinking Korean War, but
1: yeah, it could be either one.
0: Right. I mean, it, based on based on when it's written, um, it could be. Uh, I, I was thinking kind of late 40s into the 50s. Um in any event, uh, he is he he would have been uh, an African-American man in the military uh, at a time when um, that that was possible, but there was still division and stigma. Um, but at the same time, uh, he, he, yeah he, he seems to have an ambivalence towards the route that he took. Um, it's it's what he did but it's not what he wants his little brother to do so uh, a former military now teacher personality wise he seems to have spent a lot of his life uh, shutting out the uh, the grimness um, the, the, the 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 element of despair uh, that's that's in his atmosphere um, if you uh, if you walk through the the story there's um, continual references to darkness um, literal darkness in, in the scene but also darkness in people darkness in their faces um, uh, darkness in hearts um, there's also uh, right there on the very first page uh, what he reads in the newspaper in the first line is that his little brother uh, had been arrested and jailed um, for uh, dealing heroin but he says on the first page I couldn't believe it but what I meant by that was that I couldn't find any room for it anywhere inside me I would kept it outside me for a long time I hadn't wanted to I had suspicions, but didn't name them. I kept putting them away. I didn't, um, skipping a little bit, I didn't want to believe that I'd ever see my brother going down, coming to nothing, all that light in his face gone out in the condition I'd already seen so many others. So, he seems to have, in some sense, escaped the darkness in his own personal life, and yet, he has not um assimilated its reality if that makes sense um, he shut out he's he's tried to shut out its possibility by denying um that it's there, seeing succumbing to it as a, as a kind of personal failure that he has avoided and he expects other people to be able to as well. Um, but there seems to be a fear that lurks at the back of that uh, the fear that, it might actually be stronger than than he then he wants to let himself think um so so that that uh that personality that way of of processing um emotions and processing events um, is something that works throughout the story um, he wants to help, but he's not sure how. Um, and as he becomes more and more aware of the depth of, of not only his brother's problems, but other problems that are around him, um, he encounters a, a, a childhood acquaintance um, and is stunned by the realization in that moment, as he's talking to this childhood acquaintance, that he's never actually thought about the struggles that this acquaintance had from his, the acquaintance's perspective. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is a story of someone who needs to learn how to see a particular reality in a particular way. Uh, and will be assisted in doing so in some way. What else should I say about this guy?
2: One thing that uh, jumped out at me, and I, and I think that David hit a lot of the, po- the main points very well, is that he, he's deeply ambivalent about Harlem itself. Uh, so, you know, obviously after he left the military, uh, he came back to Harlem, you know, he seems to be raising a family in Harlem. Uh, but when, you know, Sonny comes to him and says he's going to be a musician, uh, you know, what scandalizes him is that he's not going the route of classical music. He's not going to be a, a concert pianist, but instead he's going to be going into that jazz music. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he himself goes into the military, but he's he's not very uh, happy about Sonny going there. He himself returns to Harlem, but he's not happy about Sonny returning. So you know, I I think that you know when Sonny falls into you know the the drug world, which we'll talk about at more length later. I I think that's just another extension of that ambivalence that the narrator has uh, about where he's from, where he's going. Uh, what he can do, where he is.
1: Well, you uh, you bring up Harlem. Uh, Sonny's Blizz is arguably one of the stories of 20th century New York City. But by the time it had been it was published, Baldwin had been living in Paris for almost a decade. How do you think that distance informs Baldwin's recollections and presentations of Harlem, Nathan?
2: Well, as I said, I mean the the main character's sort of center of consciousness. Uh, is itself, you know, not quite sure what to do with Harlem. So, uh, you know, there's not really a sense, at least that I picked up, and if you guys want to correct me later, you can, that he ever made any plans or really had any ambitions to leave, uh, even though, as you said, this is an expatriate story. Uh, You know, there's relatively few place names uh, the way that I associate with some Harlem stories. uh, You know street names, club names, things like that. Uh, they do occur sparsely, but but not with any kind of density. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing about the, the geography of this story uh, is that both brothers do end up in the military, uh, at least one of them during wartime, so they are spending time away from it, and yet all of the events that happen in real time, so to speak, uh, are happening there within Harlem, so... You know, as far as, you know, the, the feel of Harlem, I've never been to New York City. I've never been to Paris, so I can't really speak to, you know, what is captured and what is missed here. Uh, but uh, but as far as, you know, conceptually, the geography of this story always has that, that distance to it. Um, you know, Michael, I, I know that you have been to New York City. Is there is there anything, uh, especially New York, that's present or absent here?
1: Well, I've never been to Harlem. But uh, I have been to the Upper West Side, and I'm I'm fascinated by this scene in the story, where um, the narrator picks up Sonny, and the two of them take this cab, and Sonny wants to ride along the park up to Harlem. So if you don't know the geography of Manhattan, Harlem is way uptown, right? It's like 115th and Lenox, I think, is the uh, is the address the narrator gives. So they're writing up the Upper West Side, which is where Columbia University is. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the expensive districts of Manhattan. I mean, everything is expensive in Manhattan now, including Harlem. But it's, it's traditionally where the new money lives. And you, you're kind of watching the Upper West Side give way to Harlem. You're, you're watching money give way to this kind of hopeless, perpetually renewing wreck that is harlem in this story there, there's that passage where the narrator talks about how all the buildings they knew when they were kids have been torn down but it's okay because identical buildings have been built in their place and the kids who live in them are having essentially the same experiences they have um when they were growing up so you have harlem is this place of constant change and yet no change at all and that differentiates it from the rest of the island at least as far as the uh at least as far as the narrator is concerned the other thing worth noting is at the end when you have that that beautiful kind of catharsis scene with the music that doesn't take place in Harlem despite Harlem's importance for African- American culture they're going down to Greenwich Village for that and Greenwich Village is um, the site of bebop um, and and that's what's that's what's going on so they have to get away from Harlem into Um, I I hesitate to say a white part of the city, but a white part of the city, right? Greenwich village in the 1950s was the home of the counterculture, but it was still predominantly uh, white. David, anything to add to that?
0: i I am learning, man. I, I know nothing about New York city. I know, I know these names. I have no idea of where they are in great geographical relationship to each other. Um, uh, yeah. The the my ignorance of New York City um would be positively insulting to an actual New Yorker. Yeah,
1: that it's interesting to me. Neither of you have been there. I've only been there once. We went there in our honeymoon. But New York figures so strongly in my kind of cultural imagination, particularly the New York of this era. Um, that I I'm really energized by reading about it, even about harlem which um because of my own socioeconomic background is not a place that i ever really imagined myself hanging out um but uh even the even the descriptions of harlem here i find energizing in a weird way
2: yeah i was going to say my my knowledge of new york city is mainly indexed to marvel comics characters
1: taxi driver
2: (laughs) Yeah, a taxi driver. Well, no, no, no. I just mean you know, like, like the rescuers. Luke, like Luke Cage lives in Harlem. Doctor Strange right. lives in Greenwich Village, so on and so forth. That's right. Yeah. Well,
1: and uh the Incredible Hulk has his big fight with the Abomination in Harlem. Oh, well, see, they, I, 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 I still haven't that seen that Harlem.
2: one. I still haven't seen that one. So you're, you're not missing anything. You know, one of the things. And the Globetrotters that, are from Harlem.
1: That's true. One of the, one of the interesting things about Luke Cage, not to get too far away from Baldwin is that it shows Harlem in the process of gentrification. And, yeah. and, and it, it really asks the question, which is worse? You know, the, the Harlem that Baldwin grew up in is a Harlem. That's not hard to romanticize. You, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's the Harlem of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and yet, it's still stifling for him because it's this place where you're trapped by your race and by your socioeconomic status. I wonder what he would make of Luke Cage's frustration with a gentrifying Harlem. And I don't have an answer for that.
2: Yeah. I was going to say that's for another episode.
1: (laughs) I I do think it's interesting that despite talking about himself as having made it out, the narrator still lives in a housing project.
0: Yeah. Though, Would that have had necessarily the same kind of stigma back then? I mean, my understanding is that a lot of um, kind of renewal projects, things that, you know, housing projects, things like that in the post-war era were made available to former soldiers and things like that. Um, Uh, It
1: it probably wouldn't have the stigma it has today, but he certainly doesn't talk about uh it as being... a a place that's at all spiritually affirming.
0: Yeah. My, um, my, my wife's grandfather uh, on her, her dad's dad was raised in one of the first housing projects in Atlanta um, in that, um, in that kind of post-war era. And so, yeah, I, I I don't know. It seems, it seems like there, there, there might've been a time in which being in a housing project didn't mean what it means um, what it came to mean hmm. i don't know
1: but but harlem itself especially in the middle of the 20th century is just the locus of african-american experience and because of that it is the locus both of creativity and joy um, there's a great leopold Sedar sangor poem called new york where he's really confused by New York until he gets to Harlem and he, it feels like Africa to him. He's Senegalese. Um, so, so you have Harlem as this place where African-American community flourishes and where African-American art is created. And there's this enormous joy to it in a poem like that. But then because it's the locus of African-American experience, it's also the locus of all the despair that being black in the 1950s meant, you know? And, and um, I think this story Plays with that a little bit because um, he, to to have his jazz experience, he actually gets out of Harlem. Yeah, just like to have, to have his own creative renaissance, Baldwin leaves the United States for Paris, a place where I think he felt like he could be black without people making an issue about it.
0: What I mean, he also seemed, Sonny also seems to view getting becoming a jazz musician as a kind of escape Mm -hmm. so that so that you know he doesn't see it as you know by by embracing the 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 life of a jazz musician i'm now going to embody the, the 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 artistic heart and soul of the place where i'm from but that is his way to 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 rise and become something something else and do something higher um and his contempt for Louis Armstrong, I, I, is that something that you, that that you could explain to me, Michael? Yeah,
1: I I, I can. Um, a lot of a lot of jazz musicians by the nineteen fifties felt that Louis Armstrong was a kind of Uncle Tom, if that makes sense. If you watch the videos of Louis Armstrong, he's always uh, he's always grinning, you know. He's he's kind of He's kind of doing a, a, a minstrel act in some ways. And okay. um, he also belongs to a older style of jazz, right? Now, he belongs to it and he helps invent the, the style of jazz that succeeds swing and big band, the bebop that Charlie Parker plays. Louis Armstrong is one of the first important soloists. And, and eventually, when you move from big band to bebop, you're moving from a, a group expression primarily to a collection of soloists, which I I think is really expressed well in those last few pages of Sonny's Blues. But Louis Armstrong would have been unhip and also racially problematic for a certain sort of African-American in the 1950s. And still now, I mean, if you look at the videos of Louis Armstrong and you think about what it was actually like to be a black man in 1930s America, it can be a little uncomfortable to see him... I hesitate to say shuck, shucking and jiving, but I think that that's probably what a person like Sonny would call it.
2: Yeah, the the I don't know the the, the passage or the uh, the film that always comes to my mind is his terribly awkward cameo in the movie musical Hello Dolly. Right. Oh dear heavens! I mean, I like, just thinking of that makes me cringe. <laughs> so.
1: Imagine imagine being a jazz music- musician in the 1950s or imagine being James Baldwin and kind of feeling this new version of black masculinity dawning and the the most popular jazz musician being Louis Armstrong. Yep. Now, from our distance, we can look back and say, oh, well, Louis Armstrong was doing all sorts of interesting stuff. And, you know, he was making huge strides for black music. And I mean, I'm not trying to put Louis Armstrong down, but I can certainly understand how a a person like James Baldwin, a person like Sonny in the 1950s would have problems with Louis Armstrong.
0: Armstrong becomes the the father who didn't push far enough, the father against whom you against, against whom the the son reacts in some way.
1: And you know, it happens to him way more than it happens to some of those other big band era figures. So Duke Ellington, for example, while I think he was probably somebody like Sonny would have seen him as kind of square. uh, He was making records with Charles Mingus and Max Roach in the late 50s. Uh, and uh, Lester Young made kind of strides into Bebop in a way that Armstrong just didn't, and his style of trumpet playing was not not conducive to that. He just he was a relic of an older time, both culturally and musically. And um, he, he does kind of take a beating here in, in Sonny's blues. Thanks, Michael. Sure. A key passage in the story comes about midway through. The, the narrator is reminiscing about childhood Sunday afternoons. And, and he remembers that while the adults were talking, the darkness was almost imperceptibly descending outside. So I'm just going to read a couple sentences here. And when light fills the room, the child is filled with darkness. He knows that every time this happens, he's moved just a little closer to that darkness outside. The darkness outside is what the old folks have been talking about. It's what they've come from. It's what they endure. It's a beautiful passage, I think. But what is Baldwin doing with it, David?
0: As I said earlier, the image of light and darkness is something that's woven throughout the play, or for, for, throughout the story, from the very first paragraph, um, and just, just to. Uh, Hear that? Uh, he he's reading the newspaper. Um, he's he's looking at uh, looking at the story that tells him this this horrifying thing about his brother, in the last sentence of the first paragraph. I stared at it in the swinging lights of the subway car, and in the faces and bodies of the people, and in my own face, trapped in the darkness which roared outside. And that. Um, you know, combined with, uh, combined with some other passages, uh, it sets up this, this image, these images of light and darkness that, that what is, what is waiting outside the home, the comfort of home is this darkness that defines the reality of the, of, of the world that they're in. Um, it is, um, it is corrupting. It is predatory. Um, just uh, you know, w- within the first few pages uh, of the story, he talks about the darkness having taken, uh, already taken, um, the boys who are in his class. Um, that that they have, in some ways, surrendered to it and embraced it. That they no longer laugh with joy. They laugh with cynicism. They mock. They abuse. Laughter becomes a power play. Um, and that is a, a succumbing of what light was in them to something that is dark. They become these creatures of dark. Um, and so this scene of the the adults on this Sunday afternoon, as it gets darker, um, the adults start talking as if uh, they'd forgotten that the children were there. Um, and this is, the, this is the from the paragraph before which you read, Michael. Um, everyone, and he means the adults, his father and his mother, uh, everyone is looking at something a child can't see. For a minute they've forgotten the children. All right? And then the silence, the darkness comes, and the darkness in the faces frightens the child obscurely. He hopes that the hand which strokes his forehead will never stop, will never die. He hopes that there will never come a time when the old folks won't be sitting around the living room talking about where they've come from and what they've seen and what happened to them and their kinfolk. And then comes uh, the paragraph with what you've read, Michael, that the darkness was what the old folks were talking about. It was where they've come from and it is what they've endured. So. These adults have gone out into the world, and they've learned to survive in the ways that they've had, and they've been scarred in the ways that they have, um, but they have also tried to, in some sense, keep the children from being taken by it. And so, as the, as the literal darkness grows, um, the adults begin to tell the truth, in some sense. Uh, to speak the truth to each other forgetting that the children are there um, but it also because, it's also this scene of familial intimacy um, where as the adults forget the children are there and begin to tell the stories of what happens in the dark the child realizes how vulnerable the happiness that they have in that moment is um, it's it's bleak and comforting And um, Enchanting in the way that a fairy tale Is enchanting um, There's nothing magical um, About like A squalid peasant hunt In a clearing <laughs> But if the woods That are around it are You know full of trolls And fairies And you change, you call the hut A cottage suddenly it becomes enchanted because of the way in which its um its small cozy safe warm warmth is the thing that keeps out the danger that's beyond um it's such a it's it's such an interesting little scene you, you
1: know it, it i've been thinking about this because Altman shoffer and i talked about it in the context of bell's peasant town in Beauty and the Beast. And and there's this enchantment that happens just because something is different than your environment. Yeah. So, you know, none of us grew up in a big city, let alone New York City, let alone Harlem. And so the kind of city descriptions that he means, I think, to be disenchanting are somehow enchanted for us, or for me anyway. And it sounds like for you too, David. And I, I think at some level, a writer as good as... Baldwin, just on the sentence level, can't help but make something sound beautiful. Even if it wasn't. I I I think he's so good at this that it might actually obscure his feelings about the place.
0: It reminds me I I a lot of not a lot, but you know, in some of my spare time I, I like to watch um you know, people who are very good at at hobbies like creating dioramas or model train sets or things like that. It's interesting. But one of the things they obsess about is weathering and rust effects and water stains on concrete and all of those things that in the real world are signs of abuse and wear and degradation. But when you take this tiny thing and you Put those same elements in, it suddenly becomes enchantingly real in a particular kind of way, and I think something like that happens in fiction as well. That this this description of even things that in literal normal life would be corruption would be signs of, uh, you know, signs s- signs of an unsafe place that's going to give you tetanus if you haven't had your shots. Um, it it becomes something else in the hands of a writer. Uh, I think I think you're right, Michael. there's there's something I is, is it the, is it the author's art overcoming their intention, or is, do do they mean for these things to be seen in this way? Uh, is this is this a way in which the art um, redeems or makes it possible to, to have a vision of something different from the environment that they've experienced. I don't know.
1: It's a little bit like I think it's called Truffaut's Law. Francois Truffaut, the French director, said there's no way to make an anti-war film because once you put war on the screen, it valorizes it.
0: Hmm, That's interesting. I think maybe the same can be said about lives of Rurality and Lives of Poverty
1: And then, then I also think of um, There's a Walker Percy essay that I've probably mentioned On this show before called The Man in the Train And it, it it He he argues there's no such thing as a literature Of alienation Because as soon as a real artist gets the alienation On the page, you share it And thus you're no longer alienated
2: <laughs> Nice. That's pretty good so I,
1: I think nice. there's, I think there's something similar going on in Sonny's Blues with these descriptions of Harlem and especially that passage like it's it's heartbreaking, but it's beautiful and it's so transporting that you feel it as beautiful before you feel it as heartbreaking. And that's fascinating to me. I mean, the same thing happens in the opening paragraph. Um, I read about it in the paper, in the subway, on my way to work. I read it, and I couldn't believe it, and I read it again. Then perhaps I just stared at it, at the newsprint spelling out his name, spelling out the story. I stared at it in the swinging lights of the subway car, and in the faces and bodies of the people, and in my own face, trapped in the darkness which roared outside. That objectively is a nasty thing to describe, right? We're describing one of the worst days in this narrator's life, and yet Baldwin puts it so well that it doesn't feel negative in a weird way. The negativity of it is hidden beyond the prose.
0: Well, it feels negative, but the negativity has been elevated into something else that is more like tragedy.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a a good comparison because maybe that's ultimately what we're talking about here is just the act of turning tragedy into art aestheticizes it and we feel it secondarily as tragedy and and maybe that allows us to take the darkness in our own life the darkness that we feel encroaching on us whatever our circumstances and and see that from a distance as well
2: and i would want to adjust that just a little bit and say that tragedy is already inherently artistic so to take what is horrific you know beyond intelligibility beyond redemption and to turn it into the art that we call tragedy is already to give form to that which defies form.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things, though, that often is... Um... I think maybe tragedy is 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 sometimes uh, decried for or the the quote that you mentioned earlier Michael about you know you can't make an anti-war film uh, because it because it it glorifies it Um, one of the things that tragedy does and that we're we're often horrified by by squalid suffering or uh, meaningless or that th- th- those misery of, porn. Yeah, yeah, okay. M- m- misery that comes along with this idea of, and also you are small and you are unimportant and it doesn't matter. Um, tragedy can't possibly do that. Tragedy can't give that effect. It will take a scene that might have that effect otherwise, but it cannot but treat its subject as important. Um, and there's something,, uh, something I think dignifying about it. it. by by turning something into the subject of tragedy, you make it, you make it meaningful. You make it,, um, if if not necessarily explaining the tragedy, it becomes portentous. Uh, and and that, I think, might actually be more, more honest to the dignity of the human than a way of speaking of suffering that preserves the oh it's just it's just meaningless squalor and you know, like, like I, I don't I don't know if I'm making sense, but there's a way in which Sonny's blues creates a depth of dignity to tragedies that are very easy to dismiss as just meaningless disposable squalor
1: yeah well and then the other side of it too that sonny's blues also avoids is romanticizing suffering and making it sound just beautiful and if you're shooting if you're shooting to romanticize it uh you're going to make something that's pornographic in its own way right but if you do what baldwin is doing which is you're seeking to express it um and and to be honest about it I, i think that's where the dignity that you're mentioning comes in david
0: the the old um the, the the acquaintance of their youth that was always you know bumming money off of him so he could buy drugs which was you know subtext uh that particular character um he's not i don't know he's he's not some kind of romanticized victorian street urchin or you know it's not i don't know it's not oliver and company um or oh. <laughs> Right it right where 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 that kind of squalor becomes oh well, it, he's just an interesting, colorful character living his you know living his life, you know, the way some people in the early twentieth century talked about hobos in this romanticized way,
1: and one day one day I swear I'm gonna write my book, American hobo, about the the long history of cultural representations of hobos. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by that whole thing, but I, I, I agree. There is something, um, there's something pornographic about that sort of presentation because it's so untrue. Mm-hmm.
0: But now then I'm
1: sure, I'm sure Nathan has a problem with my calling it pornographic cause it reeks of <laughs> romantic art as uh, as religion.
2: Well, you're the one just trashing romanticizing, so you're, you're doing my work for me. <laughs> Would you want to say sentimental instead?
1: I, I do, yeah, I do mean sentimental. <laughs> Nathan, Sonny's uh, heroin addiction and drug arrest are the inciting incidents of the story, but in what sense is this a story about drugs? Does Baldwin shed any kind of light on what draws people to drugs like heroin?
2: You know, that, that early encounter uh, with the, the young man who is, you know, I I, I'm, I don't think it's too much of a jump to say an addict, uh, is really the scene that, that makes me think of this as a story about drugs, because this is the, I'd, I would say, truthful presentation of the complexity of the addict, uh, because, you know, this is a person who is, the narrator experiences as alien in certain ways, but also as his neighbor and his brother. Uh, And so, you know, the the interaction between them, uh, you know, I'll I'll be honest, I mean, what it reminded me of, uh, and this is a text that I go to again and again, I realize, uh, is to the character Bubbles from The Wire, uh, because he is at the same time, as far away as you could imagine from, you know, being sanitized. I mean, there's no... Uh, And I'm talking about Baldwin's character here. Uh, There's no sense that you look at that and you say, man, I wish I could live that life. But at the same time, you can't reduce him simply to an empty space where a character is. There's definitely a character there. Uh, So, I mean, I think in that respect, uh, you know, I I think what I want to say, and and I've been trying to work this out in my head since I, I saw the show notes, is that the truest story you can tell about drugs is to tell the story of an addict, and I think this story does that well. Now, as far as Sonny's addiction, I mean, honestly, uh, because there aren't that many scenes with an addicted Sonny, uh, it's not nearly as prevalent, but I do think that the character at the beginning of the story definitely makes this a a true story about drug addiction. Uh, Michael, I mean, what else is there going on with with the, the drug question here?
1: What I find remarkable about that um, that uh, early the the encounter with the with the drug addict is um the narrator dismisses him and then feels guilty, he says for never having supposed the poor bastard had a story of his own, yep. much less a sad one and and to me, there's something in that moment that shows you Baldwin's ethics as a as a writer of fiction that that it really is about trying to find the story in people who otherwise we would be tempted to dismiss as not having one.
2: Yeah. And again, I think that is the essence of tragedy, right? I mean, you know, yeah. I, I think that this story does it well. I think that, uh, you know, again to return to the wire that series takes you know teenage drug dealers which you know in so many contexts become just a sort of faceless mass of corruption decadence and you know squalor uh, and turns them into characters and I think that's what Baldwin does with this drug addict in this story
1: anything to add to that David?
0: One of the things that fascinated me about Sonny's own attempts to put into words what drew him to heroin, what what did he get out of that experience? Um, you get the sense, you know, as he as he describes it, you get the sense that he has all of these complex needs and longings and desires and visions. Uh, that his own life never quite meshes with. Um, he he has this complexity within him that somehow, when he's on the drug, those itches are scratched. Um, so that you cannot simply take the take the drug and take the addiction and say. Um, here is someone who is simply settled for some kind of uh, some kind of lesser pleasure, right? It's It's not necessarily like the sin of gluttony in that sense of, of I have settled for a lesser love, you know, a, a lesser pleasure, but rather, I am a complex person whose higher pleasures, higher, needs higher ambitions and desires um haven't been met and the drug in some way interlocks with those complexities inside of me um to make me feel as if that complexity is fulfilled in a way that life has denied me um and I know it's not true. <laughs> it, that, so, so the way that in which he describes it, it's it's uh, it's what you said, Nathan. That this is a person who who has a story and has a complexity of character. That their addiction, their the fact that they've got this beast on their back, the fact that they've got this overriding desire, does not doesn't make them simple. They turn to it because they are complex. Uh, at least in sonny's case he turns to it because he is a complex creature um, who who has complex needs and the drug at least in some way addresses that and that i find uh that i find interesting about this insightful and helpful to me
1: it's interesting that so many of the jazz musicians of that era were heroin addicts. So I mean, in, in one sense what he's describing here is sociological, right? I mean Charlie Parker, <coughs> whom yeah. um whom Sonny idolizes was himself a heroin addict. Miles Davis was a heroin addict. John Coltrane was a heroin addict. Um so, so whatever whatever I, I, I shouldn't make the connection, um, but it, it seems perhaps that whatever it was drew them to jazz also drew them to heroin in particular heroin. Um, and having never done heroin, I don't really have a sense of what that means, mm-hmm. but I'm sure somebody somewhere does.
0: Yeah. I my, my knowledge of all of the, you know, the, the fine brain chemistry <laughs> that distinguishes what the experience of these different substances are. And, what is the purpose of that brain chemistry when it's not being hacked chemically? Um, what are you know what are the complexities of, of personality, of imagination,, of, you know, yeah, what what keys is that drug unlocking or forcing or picking um, in ways that the human creature wasn't made for? Um, but those locks are there for proper keys. I don't know. Maybe it's a jazz-shaped key.
1: I don't know. Let's move on to jazz, because the, the, the great subject of this story, as the title suggests, is music, and in particular jazz music. And the story ends um, with this really remarkable passage that keeps it from being a tragedy, uh, which makes this the second week in a row that we've talked about a text that looks like it's going to be a tragedy and then veers away at the end. Uh, but anyway, in, in this passage, the narrator listens to Sonny's combo play in this little club in Greenwich Village. What does Baldwin want us to understand about music in the story, David?
0: Oh, Lordy. The first thing that I could do for for you, dear listener, if you have never read this story, uh, we usually say this, but, but absolutely do it anyway here. Go, go read this passage for yourself, because... I can in no way do justice for the experience of actually reading this for yourself. Um, you you say truly remarkable, Michael, and and yes, yes it is. The way that he describes uh, the the interaction between musicians is interesting here. Uh, we I have never played in a band. All right. I've hardly played an instrument at all. Right? I had some cello lessons back in the day I couldn't do anything with now. But the, uh, the intimacy of a relationship between the, the different instruments and their players, uh, the way that they um, defer to one another, summon one another, energize one another, respond to one another. Uh, these are all in the ways that Baldwin writes about this scene. Uh, it's, it's very much uh, about the relationships between these persons, and he speaks of them um, by means of their music, um, being with one another in this moment in different ways. About the music itself, it is revelatory. As Sonny is listening to it, he comes to understand things uh, about uh, his own experience, about the experience of other people, um, that there is a way in which Sonny is, through his music, channeling the experiences of those who come before him, as well as his own experience, um, and giving uh, giving ways of of looking those experiences, uh, the feelings and the thoughts that accompany them, um, in the face and doing them justice. Um, so th- there's a way in which Sonny, as a musician, is a prophet. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of the ways in which uh, someone like Philip Sidney and, and others talk about poets being prophets. Uh, there's something very similar going on here. Um, sonny's art becomes uh a a higher way of speaking the real um and communicating uh to to the human permitting um those with ears to hear let them hear right? so yeah that that's 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 really what i got out of it uh and given how concerned he has been about his about his brother the whole time of trying to uh, rescue his brother of being responsible for his brother of seeing his brother as this um, fragile and imperiled uh, younger person with whom with whose safety he has been entrusted and he failed in that trust right because that's that that subtext is worked through is worked throughout it as well. Um, in this moment, Sonny becomes the one who must teach our narrator, who must uh, help him see things. He Sonny becomes the greater, and the narrator becomes the lesser. Uh, and the graciousness with which Sonny has interacted with Uh, his brother prior to that I think becomes apparent in this scene you realize that Sonny's a big deal (laughs) it's not just that he's a good piano player and he has enormous talent it's that within this world that he enters with his brother you discover that Sonny is respected Sonny is revered Um, and Sonny's giftedness with music permits him to do and see and say through that music, things that his brother could has never been able to imagine or come to grips with. And so that, uh, that way in which our narrator has from the first paragraph turned his face away from the darkness, um, becomes impossible in the last scene and in seeing the darkness in some way, he sees the light. Um, and sunny is the one who is able to do that for him. Uh, it's a really cool scene what am i what am I missing because I don't necessarily know the terminology and the language that Baldwin is using to describe jazz here
2: i'll I'll leave the terminology to Michael, but one thing that uh, I thought was really remarkable about it is that uh, if you do think of a a tragedy that is delivered at the end by the power of music, uh, you know a how should I say it? A less attentive writer uh, might just make the final show kind of univer- uniformly glorious, uniformly uh, revelatory, uniformly virtuosic, but but this show has its ebbs and flows, and I like that fact. Yeah. That, you know, it is in the fact that some of the numbers were just falling flat, but others were transcendent, uh, and that we leave off in the middle of the set rather than at the end of the set. Uh, I mean, I think that... Uh, you know, again, my 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 much-revisited-here-lately penchant for allegory comes in. Uh, the, this is the, the Pilgrim's Life, Michael's uh, favorite homo viator theme in literature, right? Uh, you know, this is a show that, that doesn't end, but is still making its way as the story ends.
1: To me... The thing that happens at the end is presence that somehow the narrator sees Sonny in a way that he's never been able to see him before. And Creole, who is the, the base play, the base fiddle player who, is, who was kind of in charge of the combo, um, he is kind of negotiating the presences of everybody on stage such that everyone can speak their darkness that is inside them and turn it into something approaching joy so in in that sense the what what baldwin does in this story is what the the jazz combo does on stage at the end of the story they they it's not that they're ignoring the darkness if you've ever listened to bebop it's 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 not happy music exactly, it's wild music. And in that in that wildness there is both joy and despair. And and really you can't separate the two of them. If if our listeners haven't listened to somebody like um like Charlie Parker, they they really owe it to themselves to go do so. Go go just go to YouTube and listen to Charlie Parker for an hour. And and I I think the end of the story will make more sense. I mean, there there is a sense in which that music, um, for all its technical complication and it's enormously complicated, um, the 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 chords change very very quickly and it's very very hard to play it. Um, supposedly, I've never even tried. Um, for for all of that, there is something primal about it. There there's something uh, that is laying bare the guts of the musician right there on stage for you to share in particular. Uh, I mean, in, in essentially I've never played jazz. I've never played music that was heavily improvisatory. Um, there's that word again. Um, but I, I was in a band and I, I do kind of know what this is about. There, are, there are moments when you're playing, where everything just kind of clicks and it's like there's an extra person on stage because it's, it's what you're all doing together that comes together and becomes this new thing. So uh, I, I think it's accurate in that sense. And I I can only assume it's even more accurate for actual musicians playing music. That's much more complicated than anything I ever wrote.
0: Yeah. Well, in music that, that necessarily rises out of that, Right. I mean, that that at least is my understanding with without that relationship happening. There isn't. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So
1: and and it's 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 much less, you know, big band largely written out. Right. I mean, it's it's closer to classical music in that sense because it's it's pre composed. And, And bebop is to some extent. But bebop is about individual improvisation over the backing of a combo that's kind of there for you. And, and so it's this, I mean, we, we listen to Kind of Blue, which is not bebop really in any way, but it, it has a, a similar relationship with improvisation and group performance. Um, so you'll remember in in Kind of Blue, one person would would step forward and play for 32 bars and then step back and somebody else would step forward. But it's not like everybody else cuts out during that part. They're doing what they can to build up the person who's playing, even when they don't know exactly what he's going to play. So they have to they have to pay really close attention to him. Yeah. So the, the yeah. sense I get reading this, we don't know anything about Creole. Uh, we meet him just a, a few minutes before the show starts. But he clearly knows something about Sonny that Sonny's brother doesn't know. And that's how he can organize this whole thing. And he can do it on the fly.
0: I wondered as I was reading. I wondered if Creole, to the the degree to which Creole is responsible not just for mediating the relationships within the band, but the degree to which he sees himself doing that, even with Sonny and his brother, he seems yeah, to that's be aware point. that Sonny's brother is is, is coming. That, aware that he's going to be there and and he's welcoming him into this space and uh, it's it's explicitly it's explicitly said that the that, that Creole is trying to draw out of sunny things that he knows are there um, to get him to say things that he knows Sonny needs to say but he hasn't been able to yet because he's been um, cut off from the music for so long mm-hmm. um, you know you know I don't know. I I, I felt uh, creole seemed very big to me. <laughs> if that if if that if that word makes sense.
1: Yeah, um, it does make. And and again, it's all about presence, right? And creole is this presence that kind yeah. of fills the room.
0: Provident in a, in a, in a, in an odd kind of way.
1: The whole thing makes me think of something Ted Joya said about Miles Davis. And um, you know, there's a documentary about Miles on um netflix that's worth watching and but if you watch it it will become clear to you just how nasty a a piece of work miles davis was really brutal to anybody who tried to be close to him not not a good man and ted Joya um he, he wrote a book called how to listen to jazz and he um he says yeah all that's true and you can't forget that and yet the music he makes is so tender that you know that was in him somewhere because you don't make that Without expressing something of your deepest self, and and that's not the full story. It's not like because he makes something beautiful, he's a great guy, but it does mean that the the nasty way he treated people is not the end of the story for Miles Davis, and and I, I think Sonny's not a nasty person as far as we can tell in the in the story. But there's all these all this stuff that Sonny has no way of expressing other than by playing the piano, and that's why he runs away. Um, when he's living with his brother's wife's family, uh, when he's a, when he's a kid, because he, he realizes that they just kind of tolerate the music and, and that's tantamount to saying they just tolerate him that that he that was
0: a hard scene to read.
1: Right. And it's the, it's the opposite of what we get here, right there, there he's literally absent and here he's as present as, um, as he seems to have ever been to his brother.
0: I think more. I, I, this feels like a breakthrough, not just for Sonny. Um, I mean, his his brother, our narrator, needs this uh, a lot, um, and I I love I love that the the climax of the story involves not him finally figuring out how to rescue or save his brother or communicate in a way effectively to his brother that gets his brother away from heroin or something like that. Um, I, I, I love that in the end, in some sense, it is Sonny who is breaking through and giving his brother what his brother needs.
1: Yeah. I love that. Well, um, on our way out, I'd like you guys to point to something else that struck you as interesting in Sonny's blues. What, what have I missed in this story?
2: In the last two paragraphs, there is, I think, a kind of quiet, revolutionary politics going on that I just thought was a a masterful stroke to end the story on. Uh, When he is experiencing the music, uh, he starts to remember uh, his daughter's death. and I'm going to read the last several sentences and then comment a little bit. It brought something else back to me and carried me past it. I saw my little girl again and felt Isabel's tears again, and I felt my own tears begin to rise. And I was yet un- and, I- and I was yet aware that this was only a moment that the world waited outside, hungry as a tiger, and that trouble stretched above us longer than the sky. Then it was over. Creole and Sonny let out their breath, both soaking wet and grinning. There was a lot of applause, and some of it was real. "'In the dark, the girl came by, and I asked her to take drinks to the bandstand. "'There was a long pause while they talked up there in the indigo light, "'and after a while I saw the girl put a scotch and milk on top of the piano for Sonny. "'He didn't seem to notice it, but just before they started playing again, "'he sipped from it and looked toward me and nodded. "'Then he put it back on top of the piano. "'For me, then, as they began to play again, "'it glowed and shook above my brother's head like the very cup of trembling.' And I, I knew that I had heard that phrase, cup of trembling, before, so I, I, I did have to search for it. I, I can't uh, claim any uh, Bible accolades here. Uh, but it's from Isaiah 51, and it is a vision uh, there in you know, the second segment of Isaiah, the one that runs from uh, you know, chapter 40 through chapter 55 of Israel's return. And in this vision, the cup of trembling is something that Yahweh takes from Israel, And puts in the hands of Israel's enemies and this is a sign that uh, the things that have made them exiles are now going to be visited on the people who exiled them and it's fascinating because I mean this is not a story that deals a lot with Malcolm X it's not a story that deals a lot with Marcus Garvey Uh, and yet there is this moment of political imagery at the end that i thought was just fascinating so you know i uh, we, we we've talked about a, a good number of, of fascinating passages in this story uh the ending is is just as remarkable
0: grubs man i was gonna talk about the cup of trembling oh well Never mind. You, you
2: still could you yeah i was going to say you and i read the bible a little bit differently from each other grubs so i have a hunch you could probably uh find something different there
0: well i certainly didn't see marcus garvia at all um in the in the cup of trembling uh but the the general sense of the apocalyptic um i think is is absolutely there and uh that was one of the things that turned my mind uh to seeing Sonny as a prophet um um, a prophet in a time when there is judgment right um, yeah so that was that That was fascinating uh, the other the other bit uh, you, you mentioned him remembering his little girl um, his little girl dying the narrator's little girl dying there's also a scene um, uh, a paragraph earlier uh, in the story in which that's described um, in greater detail um uh, it's death, uh, death from polio. And uh, oh, that was hard. That was a hard one to read. Um, uh, as a window into parenting in a time uh, of uh, health complications that uh, are not necessarily ones that are in the forefront now. Um, that was uh, that was hard but also I think good to to, to remember um, what polio was uh, what a lot of these diseases that we managed to drive away from the modern world are um, I know that we're dealing with you know the one that's on all the all the covers all the headlines now um, but it wasn't that long ago when other diseases were in those headlines, and not just headlines, but but everyone's family and everyone's home. Um, yeah, so that's, so that that particular paragraph uh, stuck stuck with me, um, and uh, I don't. I that that was one that I don't think is going to go away. Um, I felt that one in particular. Um, part of that is um, we have. Uh, We have children um, with special needs um, and as a result we have built up a network of friends uh, who are in not precisely the same but sometimes analogously um, demanding or uh, worrying or stressful kinds of situations and so a number of our friends have children who are um, medically fragile uh and this this story was good for helping me to um to see what is uh behind my own friends uh brave faces sometimes and that's good
1: well thanks david thanks for sharing That is it for our discussion of Sonny's Blues. Normally, this is when I would turn to David and say, what are we talking about next time? But next time is three months in the future. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll be back sometime late August, early September with new episodes. I will say the Core Curriculum Series 3 is going to start here probably in a few weeks. It's on Sappho's poems. And probably before we come back uh, again, the fourth series on the Odyssey will have started. But who knows? That's a ways in the future. You can get in touch with us at christianhumanist.org. Our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Do send us uh, episodes you'd like us to re-air if you have any. Uh, The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Till next time, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.